Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. It's something we do not talk enough about. Every week, I have on cool people from the crypto industry to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. I am here with Danny Zuckerman. Danny is the co-founder of Three Box Labs. Three Box is doing some super interesting stuff on sort of the the data layer of of all things Web three. Danny, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Chase. Excited to talk. I am super excited to chat about a couple things that that you've been I know thinking about. But before we dive into all of that stuff, do you want to give a little bit of background on you, how you got into crypto, and what you're working on? Sure. So crypto hooked me as basically the best tool for coordination humanity has ever had. I've been fascinated with how people coordinate at basically all scales, going back to high school and watching the West Wing relentlessly and thinking I'd be in politics, um, study political philosophy. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the theory of how government scale and society scale coordination happens and, and often how it doesn't happen. Then I spent a few years in um, strategy consulting, largely helping really big companies try to coordinate better and reorganize across the globe, then went to an eight-person startup and helped build up teams and thought a lot about how not just to build products, but how to build effective teams and how to coordinate inside and outside a company and, and really enjoyed the challenges there. Even on small teams, coordination is often one of the hardest issues. And so this common thread of, okay, like why is it so hard for people to work together so often especially when you cross certain scales, like 150 people and communities and Dunbar's number, how do we make that better? And I had simultaneously been spending a lot of time thinking about identity. I co-authored a book in 2016 on identity completely outside of technology about, you know, how do we think about who we are and how do we evolve over time, especially after traumas. And around that time, I just fell down the blockchain rabbit hole, was traveling, so I had some time to, to read. And yeah, I just saw it as this, this completely new way to coordinate, to really establish much more known parameters for how we organize with other people and saw tons of potential in that. Um, also tons of pitfalls though, because this was 2016, 2017, the space was full of huge dreamers and huge visions, but also mostly mechanism designers. That was barely a term then, but mathematicians and computer scientists and a lot of big visions, but not a whole lot of understanding of all the other factors besides uh, monetary incentives that drive people. And so that's what got me into the space and have been working on some core primitives for it, namely identity and how we manage information, not just assets in a decentralized way since then. I love it. And the the thought in like, there are so many things outside of mechanism design that need to exist for this to succeed is sort of like part of the the ethos behind this podcast, but also why I'm excited to have you on. So you had a thread about tokenized communities. We'll dive right into it because I want to talk a lot about it. First, you want to give like a summary of the thread and like why you were thinking about this whole challenge around tokenized communities? I won't try and summarize the whole thread because I think it was like more tweets in that thread than I've posted the rest of this year combined. But I I think what it really comes down to is humans are motivated by many different things and money and kind of self-interest is just one of them. And so while crypto networks have this magical potential ability to coordinate people across vast scales and for anything with unbelievable efficiency, 
and there is this potential nirvana for for how DAOs and tokenized networks generally let us coordinate tokens when they're deployed as money and as monetary incentives and only as that in communities and, and i'll say communities are different from just any given network but when they're deployed in a community might crowd out a bunch of other things that we're already serving to motivate and hold together that community because money is not the only thing that motivates us we're also motivated by reputation and by status and by cultural norms and by morals and those things do a really good job holding your friend group together or letting you do things for your neighbors or just contributing in a way that's not part of your contract at your job not everything needs a specific monetary incentive and there's Lots of really good research that shows when you introduce monetary incentives into situations that were previously governed by reputation or morality or some of these other things, it doesn't add to them, it crowds them out. And you've actually done more harm than good. And so while there is this nirvana of tokenized networks for everything helping coordinate, there's also a dystopia where tokenized networks crowd out everything else that makes communities great and turns every interaction we have in our groups of people into just money making opportunities and a whole lot would be lost if that's the future we ended yeah i really liked the parallel that you drew between like facebook in this thread so the idea that facebook was created out of this idea that we can connect people online And they sort of did that for a bit, but when you push it to the 10th degree and you force them to monetize in a way that's super scalable, you end up with what Facebook is today, which has connected people, but it has also sort of uprooted democracy in a lot of ways. And so I loved the idea that there are these like potentially unintended consequences of any system and the idea of looking at crypto with this maybe more critical lens isn't the right term, but kind of is super interesting. In this world of communities and tokenization, I'm curious what types of communities you see as super useful for for putting a lot of monetary incentives in like the, the base layer versus, you know, communities where that actually might be more problematic. Yeah, well, I think it depends. So, so there's there's different types of groups, different types of networks, and some of them are not really communities at all. So miners for a storage network are providing a commodity service. And it's probably pretty good for that to be really raw economics um, and let the market dictate the most efficient prices and and services. And you could make the argument that a lot of crypto networks that provide commodities or provide computation or provide some of these just pure services don't really need to worry about this as much because that is just a market the way many others are. When you get closer to services being provided by people, so DAOs that work together to build a new product or to curate NFTs or to just build interesting things together, which seems to be more and more common, um, or you move past those for-profit goals, the things that might replace a firm or an organization to actual communities. Um, So a meetup group that gets together to talk about user interaction design or just your like neighborhood block party. Like the further you get down that side, the more wary we should be of introducing something that looks like money, introducing tokens, because that's where a bunch of values that aren't just economic incentives already exist and why are introducing these new incentives will crowd those out. So I don't know that there's a binary answer, but I think it's just understanding where any given group or network fits on that scale and how much of the the human things that aren't monetary incentives and that our markets already exist. 
Interesting. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, I'm seeing a lot, especially now on Twitter and sort of like in general in the crypto world about ownership being this like fundamentally different way to organize and like tokens representing ownership. And it and I've seen some people and I don't know if it's just like a clickbaity type tweet, but who are saying like, everything will ultimately be a DAO and everything will ultimately have tokenized ownership because that's just a more efficient model. What are your thoughts on that? And in the context of this idea of what you just said, we're like, yeah, there are some things that maybe you don't want to essentially commoditize. Yeah, well, this is this is where there's so much uncertainty because a lot of the pernicious incentives I just talked about are for money. But tokens aren't just money. They are also ways to program in things that look a lot like equity or ownership. Um, which is really exciting. And you've got this kind of currency and equity and rights and like all baked into one. And so there's a lot of ways in which tokens can do things and represent values or value in ways that just raw money can't. And so I do think that we can talk about what will happen or what should happen. And I think part of both the uncertainty, but the, also the excitement is that you can make tokens actually represent more than just an economic incentive. And so on ownership, particularly, I'm super excited by that vision. I think that giving um, the community that's supporting you early on a share in the upside and a reason to kind of go invite their friends is super powerful. And if Airbnb could have done that, I think it would have supercharged their growth even more. But, you know, this isn't a great answer. You just have to be careful if you introduce an economic incentive really early and you haven't really carefully curated who should get that those tokens, who should be part of it and why then you're just going to be full of speculators and people who want the money or want to invest, not the actual believers. And so this is where it comes down to like, again, are you just looking for capital and you know you want to distribute equity far and wide? Or do you want to reward the people who truly believe in you? Brian Flynn wrote a great thread a month or two ago about launching a network is like launching a spaceship. You better choose your kind of early astronauts really wisely. And so I think you can't just trust these economic incentives or these tokens to solve everything. You have to think about how they interact with other decisions you're making. Yeah. And actually something that many months ago, the last time that you and I chatted, you said something that I thought was really interesting, which was this idea that like you're much better off designing a a token and the tokenomics behind it when you know how like a community exists and like how it actually ends up playing out. I'm curious to hear your take on like how airdrops have been done so far. And like, it seems like there's a lot of probably conversation to be had around the mechanisms that are currently being used because it feels like it's trying to reward early users. At the same time, people have an incentive to use like every single new DeFi product for that reason. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective on community distribution. Are airdrops the best way to do it? And, and yeah, are there more interesting like models potentially? Yeah, I don't have anything against airdrops, just like I don't have anything against massive paid advertising campaigns early in a company's life. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. I just don't think we know how effective they are. And even the most effective ones, the data that we can point to can only say the airdrop was super successful in attracting a bunch of users or investors or LP liquidity providers. But if you're trying to build something sustainable and really valuable over the long term, um, attracting users is only the first step. Then you have to retain them and you have to have them continue to be your best ambassadors and bring others uh, in. 
And if you don't do that, then you've got a short-term gain and you can point to a bunch of adoption and maybe you can go, you know, get some buzz or raise some money or hire some people. But you've now given away ownership in your network and your competitor hasn't or the competitor doesn't exist yet hasn't. And so they can go do an airdrop and potentially attract everybody. And so I think things like an airdrop, which are really just like a paid acquisition tool with some other interesting components like this ownership economy, you have to think about, okay, once they come into my ecosystem, are they going to stay? Are they going to be useful? And if you've built really valuable product and the challenge is really just getting people in and once they're in, they're going to contribute a bunch of content or contribute code or start building, then it's probably a great idea. But if they're just going to come in, deposit some liquidity and wait for the next best thing to go over to the next ride, then maybe it's actually not all that useful. And so I think it's pretty early to know if any of these models, um, especially for airdrops, but also just generally for token economics, we don't really know how effective they are long term because we're only judging on at most a couple of years of returns and data so far. Yeah. Something else that I've been thinking a lot about that I know you have thought 10 times more about is like identity in a lot of these ecosystems. So I'm super curious how you think about this identity layer when it comes to to airdrops and building early communities and if like on-chain transaction history or other types of data will play a role. So I absolutely think it will. I'll start with identity means so many different things depending on the context. Um, and when I think about identity or, or what you call the identity layer, I try to boil it down to what is like the simplest primitive, the kind of intersection between all of those different use cases. Because when someone talks about identity, they might mean anti-civil or proof of individuality to have a one person, one vote democracy for network. Someone else might be talking about legal identity and KYC. And someone else might just mean they really want to target users really well with rich history of data. And what all of those use cases have in common is the ability to dependably associate information to an identifier. The identifier is what lets you pick out that entity from the crowd, from every other wallet, from every other address, or to your government, from every other person. And so you need that identifier, but then you need a bunch of information associated to it, whatever that information is. So we haven't really had a good way to do that. We've had spot ways to do it and kind of bundled solutions that were hard to use. We, we kind of finally can do this in a really flexible way that works across different apps, across different chains, across different contexts. And that's really important because now it lets you have a persistent experience across decentralized and previously siloed applications and services and, and blockchains. And when you don't have that, what is basically happening is each time you go to an app or to a service or to a community or to a governance forum, you're interacting with basically a brand new person every single time, or it might as well be a brand new person because people can recycle into new addresses. They can ditch their username on Discourse and have a different one on Discord. And so there's no semblance of this repeat over time reputation-based experience or community which just makes for a really terrible user experience over time. It means that every time you use, you know, choose an app, your experience ends when you leave the page and starts completely fresh when you come back. And so what a good identity system does, which by the way, does not mean it has to be, you know, real or legal identity. It can be still be anonymous or pseudonymous, but it lets you or other users or organizations or smart contracts or NFTs start to associate information and aggregate it to have reputation over time so that you can actually trust that 
someone makes a comment on a governance forum about a proposal, now you have a little bit more context about where they're coming from. Or when you go interact with someone on MBA Top Shot and send them a message and then you go check you know, another app on Flow or go buy an NFT on Rarible, they just announced they'll be building on Flow. Now you can actually have these experiences that cross boundaries. And yeah, without that, we've really just been like handicapping what Web3 experiences can be. And so I'm excited to see what happens once these experiences can start to compose across across applications and blockchains. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting pieces to me over the last like few months from just like a culture perspective has been people putting their ENS names in their Twitter names, because if you want to, you can see like anything if if they're using that address, I guess, for stuff that they're doing on chain, like you can go see what tokens they're holding, which I think what NFTs they're holding, which is kind of cool. Like there's this interesting social layer that's now sort of like being associated with anything that you're doing on chain and potentially even like data that's that's stored off chain, but that is still relevant, which is so insane to me. I'm curious when you think about like where identity is going and the types of data that that's being like associated with, with different identities, I guess, or maybe that make up identities, what do you think is like the most interesting data that, that, you know, will change the way that we interact in web three? Yeah. So I actually think that as a jumping off point, ENS is a pretty good place. And so ENS does naming for the Ethereum ecosystem really well, human readable names, but you can then trace back to their on-chain reputation and data. And that's great. And that has really changed the experience of certain applications and what you can do in Web3. It introduces this familiarity and complements what we've been doing with three box profiles a while back really well. But right now, ENS doesn't really scale. It's meant as a naming system and really lightweight kind of profile, but that can only hold like a bits of metadata and a link to your one address online. And so it's it's your on-chain history, which is really, really important and valuable if you want it to be public. You know, there's a lot of things that you actually don't want correlated to you. And then it's maybe like a profile name and a photo, and I think they have an avatar, and they can extend that a little bit. But because it's on-chain, it means a couple of things. First of all, it means that it can't really serve as the place to aggregate any application's arbitrary data. So the user-generated content that would be on a social media platform or the preferences and settings that a DeFi app needs. Like all this just like infinitely flexible and malleable types of data don't really fit into the meditative fields of ENS, nor can you update it efficiently because for you want to update it, it's a smart contract. And so it's it's on-chain, it's inefficient. It's also siloed to Ethereum. And so we can still take that pattern of being able to associate this like cryptographic key to some information and extend it because that's what the the kind of identity layer that you're talking about with what we're building at Ceramic Network and some of our, some of our partners that are enabling now is that same pattern, but apply it to some of those use cases. So your token watch list and your uh, currency settings can be stored now, you know, say in Zerion, um, they're working on integration. And so when you go to a new browser or to the mobile app or you you just like switch computers instead of it being lost because it was previously stored in local storage, you have it. But also now if you go to Zapperify, they can access that same information potentially. Same thing if you go to pool together. So you can now have a token watch list or a contact list that you know might have originated in MetaMask but can be used across all of these different applications. So that's just like kind of user data. Another really exciting one is user-generated content. 
And so ones I'll call out here are like governance forums, um, like Snapshot, which is these proposals for different projects and votes. And right now they've needed a server to keep track of that data and associate them with the right projects. But once you have dependable user-centric identity and storage, you can actually just have every vote and proposal be stored with a user. And now when you go to boardroom, you can have comments based on that, those same proposals. And so you have this composability of data, just like we've gotten to use to composability of NFTs or assets on chain. Now you have that for data. And so those are a couple of the use cases, but I think it's going to be hard to imagine the breadth of it because it's, you know, it's just data. It's kind of anything that powers experience online that's, that's not an on-chain asset. Yeah. The, the governance thing is actually super interesting. I had not thought about like composability of data in the context of governance. I'm also curious from like a social sort of graph perspective, is there a world in which, I don't even know what this would look like, but like you and I know each other. Is that data somewhere on ceramic where it's like useful for people to know that we know each other? Like, I'm curious how the, how the social element potentially plays out here. Yeah, we have a bunch of partners building different versions of this. And so there's a very simple version, which is just I keep a private list of all of the addresses or DIDs, the decentralized identities that I follow or that I am connected to. Connection might be a signed message both ways to kind of prove that it's mutual. A follow is just me adding to a list like in Twitter. I click follow and you don't have to approve it. Those could be encrypted ceramic streams that could be disclosed to another application so that they can use the same follow list. They could also potentially be public so that anybody can build up upon these. It's going to depend on what users and apps want to disclose. There's more sophisticated versions of that. You know, you can model any different kind of relationship. I think it's too early to know exactly what will emerge over time. I don't think we'll have like a single social graph that everyone can use because Different relationships require different types of definitions and access controls and, and metadata and, and public versus private or kind of discoverable. And so I think we'll see a bunch of different patterns and there'll be some natural adoption of the ones that are really useful. And I don't know whether it'll be a few that are all kind of modeled in the same way. So we have this massive graph or if there's going to be a lot of fragmentation where we we still have composability. We can still draw on the same things, but maybe watch lists are different than friends lists or different than, you know, professional connections. My hope is that we have something that looks a lot like composable communities where we have these, you know, a pretty sprawling network full of all these different social connections with different types of information and any given application or experience can kind of take subsets of them and compose a, a smaller community or smaller network out of them. So there's some overlap, but not exclusive overlap between them. Hmm. Yeah. My mind recently has just been like blown by the amount of things that you can do once identity becomes something that people can start playing around with in a more open way on Web3, which definitely does feel like we're, we're getting there. I'm curious, like, I know I'm asking you a lot of questions about the future, but I want to like really try to have some hypothesis on what identity looks like, like three to five years from now, when maybe people are like social token holders and also maybe participate in DAOs. I'm curious, how do you think identity from a user perspective evolves and changes from web two to web three? Like, are there fundamental differences that feel like they're going to make a big difference in people's way they interact online? 
Yeah, I think absolutely. So I think in Web2, I don't think people think about identity. I think they think about the pain of logging in, which is certainly an aspect of identity, and either trying to find their username and password or reset it, or more and more using either password managers or magic links. And then maybe they get into an experience and like the app kind of has an integration with Google to populate some information, but more likely they're going to be asked to fill in a whole bunch more info. And there's like, really, there's like, we've gotten used to having to adapt ourselves to each new product and service. And that just seems like the norm. So we don't even think about that. That's not going to be the norm five years from now. I think that the experience as a user will be to show up at an app, whether you've used it a million times or never before, and you're going to authenticate in, connect with whatever wallet you want to use. It can be MetaMask if you use that. Browsers might have built-in cryptographic wallets. Maybe you use um, a mobile-based wallet with Wallet Connect. Maybe use Magic Link. But in any case, it's seamless. It's way better than a username and password, and you're just in. Um, it's not logging in because you're not like showing credentials. It's just Again, maybe biometric or maybe signing with you know a message with MetaMask, but you just connect and you're in. And then once you're in, it's like you've docked your entire history of data and all of your information with this app, and they just serve you based on that. So instead of them retaining some fragment of your history, some sliver of information, again, whether you've used this app a million times or are coming for the first time, you're bringing the data, you're bringing your history and your reputation and your connections to it and just docking in and using that application as an interface to show you something interesting or as a service to do something interesting with that data that you bring. And so I think we're going to see that in pretty narrow ways um, early on. It might be, you know, bringing your blog posts from, you know, different text editors to different publishing platforms, or maybe we'll start to see a more active social media ecosystem in web three. I think that the DAO space is exploding right now and going to be experimenting a lot with how to connect to these different pieces of operating a decentralized ecosystem. So it's going to start with small use cases because data sprawling and, and it's hard to, to corral all of it. But pretty soon it's going to just feel like, you know, any app that doesn't make use of this trove of data you're bringing to it is stuck in kind of the, it'll be like using a uh, an app that doesn't use cloud and isn't always available today. Um, it'll just feel really ancient. That's so cool. And it, it actually models, it feels like the way that we interact with the real world probably better where you like you as a human being engage with things that exist in the real world instead of them trying to log information about you. And like, there's one of you, so you take it around, you know, that's that's sort of the, the IRL version. How cool, huh? I have never um, thought about it that way. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the show. So Danny, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about Ceramic and, and 3Box? What are all the, the socials? Yeah, too many of them. So I'm on Twitter at D-A-Z-U-C-K. Um, but more importantly, ceramic.network. Or if you want to come by our community, chat.ceramic.network. Or if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Ceramic Network. Um, if you're interested in building on Web3, building with dynamic data or identity, helping us launch with dozens of partners coming up, um, doing all sorts of interesting things around governance and DAOs and DeFi and NFTs. We'd love to hear what you're working on in chat. So find us on any of those. And thanks, Chase. This was a blast. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts that I like, but it's actually really useful. Also, 
please hit me up on Twitter if anything resonated with you. I'm at Chaser Chapman. Tweet at me, let me know what you think, and also let me know if there's anyone you think I should have on the show. Thanks again for listening.